guys. If you have a Bible, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible now, so I would encourage you to open it up to John chapter 5. We're in a study called Who is Jesus? And what we're doing is we're looking at the life of Jesus as displayed in the Gospel of John to understand who God is as we see Jesus. Jesus said towards the end of the Gospel that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. Um, Neil did a great job last week. I want to thank Neil. Why don't you give him a hand? I don't know if he's in here. Is he in here? Thank you, Neil. Did a great job starting us on John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, he healed, uh, Jesus healed someone at the pool of Bethsaida or Bethesda. Um, And after that healing, though, he started to have some opposition with the religious leaders. Throughout John, he just says the Jews. But when John says that, he's talking about the leaders, the leaders of the Jews. Uh, And these guys were upset with Jesus because he wasn't following their traditions of how to keep the Sabbath. Um, Jesus wasn't actually violating what the Old Testament said about the Sabbath. Jesus was violating their traditions of how to keep the Sabbath. And so there was uh, beginning to be a dispute between them. And so this week we're going to pick up the defense where Jesus is helping them to understand why he was doing the things that he was doing. So this week we're calling it like father, like son, because as we pick up in the second part of John chapter 5, what we're going to see is that Jesus is basing his work on his connection to the Father, his unity, his oneness with the Father. So we're going to be in verses 15 through 47, kind of covering a lot of territory. We're going back and covering a little bit of what we looked at last week just to understand what happened. Um, And then we'll zoom through and he'll say basically everything that he does, all the crazy, amazing, radical things that Jesus does are based on what the Father does. He's saying, I'm, I'm one with the Father, and what I do is what the Father does. I've seen what the Father does. I love what the Father does, and so we're doing the same thing. Um, and this is really interesting because I think it's hard for us to connect to the oneness that they have. The oneness that they have is incredibly unique. This love, this complete um, being on the same page, we don't always experience that same kind of oneness in our life. And so the picture that Jesus gives of his oneness with the Father is really helpful to us. I watched a movie about a year ago uh, about the kind of biographical background of the author of the Winnie the Pooh stories. Um, There's two of these movies that have come out in the last couple years. So one just came out that was a little more fantasy, right, where the characters appear to Christopher Robin. That was a little more fantasy, like to be continued story. But this other one came out a couple of years ago. It's called Goodbye, Christopher Robin, and actually told the background of the story. Um, A.A. Milne, who wrote the stories, fought in World War I, came back with some PTSD, um, had a hard time getting back into writing after the war, after all the horrors that he'd seen. Um, And just as kind of life rolled along, he spent some time out in the country with his son. Uh, And this time of love and joy and just play with the son revived his heart a little bit. And so they connected at a new level. They played together. They had fun together. And Out of that love grew the Winnie the Pooh stories and this character, Christopher Robin, who's based on A.A. Milne's son. And so there's this beautiful story of play and childhood and a whole set, you know, series of stories. I recommend them to you. If you've never read the Winnie the Pooh stories, you need to go read them. Don't just watch the Disney movies. Go read the actual stories. They're really good. Um, and, And these stories grew out of their love, the oneness that they had. And so there's this kind of parallel thing happening here. Jesus says, we, we had this oneness together, father and son. And out of that grows the work that Jesus does. So I'm going to start in verse 15, John chapter 5, verse 15. It says this, the man that Jesus had healed went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who 
had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pray for our time in the word that that God would teach us. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would teach us. Uh, We do bring in um, different distractions, different uh, weights on our shoulders. God, we give those to you. We cast our cares on you because you care for us, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us in this time, that your Spirit would reveal to us who you are and what you're up to. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're, we're calling it like father, like son, and this is a unique oneness that Jesus has with this father. Um, part of the tension that comes into the Winnie the Pooh story or the Christo- Goodbye Christopher Robin movie is that there's a time period in his life where he, he begins to um, regret these stories. Um, he gets picked on because he becomes world famous, right? Christopher Robin character becomes known by people all over the world, so he gets picked on at boarding school and picked on when he's in the army. Um, and he begins to kind of hate that these stories were written about his childhood, and that causes a conflict with his father. Um, you might have had a conflict like that with your father, with your mother, or maybe with your spouse, or with your best friends even. We live in a world that's full of conflict. And so what we see in Jesus with his father is something that is so supernatural and so beautiful. It's something that we long for, right? Because we know so much conflict. We know so much disunity that we long to see, we long to experience this kind of oneness. And as the Gospel of John moves forward, we see that Jesus prays that his people would know the same oneness that he knows with the Father. And I believe that's a beautiful thing that he offers to us. So in the text today, what we're going to see are kind of three actions that flow out of this oneness. Three things that Jesus does because it's who his Father is. The first thing is that Jesus does the Father's work. The Sabbath controversy as well. I'm doing the kind of work that the Father does on the Sabbath because the Father's working. So Jesus does the Father's work. The next thing that we're going to see is that Jesus gives the Father's life. That's a section that we just began to introduce at the end of our reading, this idea that God is a God of judgment, but also a God who gives life out of that judgment. So the Father is a life giver. Jesus is a life giver. And then finally, we're going to kind of talk about this concept of Scripture through the framework of witnessing and testimony. And so we're going to see that Jesus is actually the Father's final word. 
And that's gonna change how we view scripture, I believe. So first of all, we're gonna look at this concept that Jesus does the Father's work. This is his first defense, if you will, for why he does work on the Sabbath. And so let's just define Sabbath real quick before we look at the text again. The word Sabbath in Hebrew literally means to cease or to rest. So it's one of the Ten Commandments. And what I would say is just to kind of give you a general framework, uh, not all Christians agree on this, right? This is one of those things that a lot of different Christian denominations fight over, disagree on. Um, I think all Christians believe in some kind of Sabbath, right? And so there's, there's kind of a spectrum of really strict, uh, we've got to keep this day in a very strict way. The old covenant commandment from the Ten Commandments say, work six days and then remember the rest day, Sabbath day, keep it holy for worshiping the Lord, right? And so it's this idea that we should set aside a day to worship God and not do our normal work on that day. Um, so again, I think, I think we have great freedom in how we're going to fulfill that in the New Testament, but that's the general framework. What we need to understand is that the Jews, in their desire to be justified before men, had added all kinds of details on how to keep it the right way. The, the rabbis, the teachers, the Pharisees had, had said, these are all the things you can do. These are all the things you can't do. One of the specific things they said you could not do was pick up a mat because that was a kind of work that wasn't allowed in their minds, right? Again, it's not that clear in the Old Testament command, but they're saying you can't pick up your mat. So what does Jesus do when he heals the paralytic? We saw this last week. What does he say to him? He says, pick up your mat and walk. So Jesus is directly violating, not the Sabbath, he's directly violating their rules about the Sabbath. He's, he's pushing here. So now let's look at the text. The man said, he's the one that healed me, verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, on the rest day, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Here's a little interesting kink in their understanding of Sabbath. The Jews believed that God the Father worked on the Sabbath because the Jewish teachers taught that God the Father was always working to maintain his creation, right? Kinds of works that God does is he creates the universe, he sustains the universe, and he saves the people for himself. So there are these works that God does on our behalf for the world, and the Jews taught that he's always working. He's holding the universe together, right? And so they believed that, and Jesus says, oh, you know why I worked on the Sabbath? Because my father works on the Sabbath. You know why I healed and restored a man who was broken? Because my father heals and restores. So Jesus is connecting himself to the father, saying this is the kind of work that my father does. I grabbed a picture of a doctor here. Jesus specifically does healings, Several times throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus healing people on the Sabbath. And it, when you think about it, it's pretty crazy that Jesus is able to restore someone to the way they're supposed to be, right? Healing, redemption, salvation. And the Jewish leaders are like, no, that's not okay. That's, that's a violation of the rules. And so Jesus is always pushing the line with this and trying to show that this is the kind of work healing doctoring, saving, restoring, maintaining creation. This is the kind of work that the Father is about. So Jesus says, I'm doing the work that I see my Father doing. That's his first defense. What do they do when he says that? Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews, 
were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So the Jews were hugely offended. They're like, how dare you say that you're one with the father? Say that he's your father and you see him working, so you do the same work, right? They saw the oneness that Jesus was speaking of. They understood it. They understood what he was saying. It's really interesting when you come to verse 19, Jesus doubles down. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And then the original list is amen, amen. We've talked about this before. We, we say amen because of tradition at the end of prayer oftentimes, and that just basically means truly, so be it. Let it be done. This is right, right on. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. The Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So we'll get to that in the next section, right? What's the marveling stuff? He's like, there's going to be even more. He's going to talk about that in the next section. So Sabbath means cease, right? Sabbath means work. Uh, Work needs to stop. And Jesus says, but I work on the Sabbath because my Father is working. Um, I've often said that when you don't stop, it's because you believe, when you don't cease, when you don't rest, maybe we'll say, it's because you believe, I believe, that we're actually holding the world together ourselves. So when you think about it from that standpoint, you can see how offensive it is what Jesus is saying. I work on the Sabbath because the Father is working to hold the universe together. So I'm, I'm doing the same kind of stuff. And in our own life, think about it. When you say, I can't rest, you're saying, my work is too important. My work is too important to stop. I can't cease. I can't rest. If I rest, my universe is going to fall apart. And so it's fascinating. At the same time, we see the example of Jesus working because the Father is working He's pushing us to say, oh, I guess that means I can rest. You can rest, I can rest, because Jesus is working, because the Father is working. Now, again, I want to be clear. I think we have great freedom in how to interpret this. Um, A lot of Christians would say the Sabbath is no longer even binding because it's not repeated in the New Testament, Um, and that's an in-house Christian debate. We have people with different perspectives on that in our church. Um, I lean towards it is binding just because... God did this special thing with the Ten Commandments where he put them in a golden box. You know, so it kind of seems like he bracketed the Ten Commandments apart from all the rest of the law. So we all agree, we're, you know, we're no longer under the ceremonial law. We're no longer the uh, nation state of Israel, we, you know, so we no longer have to obey their kind of nation state laws. We no longer have to obey their ceremonial laws because those are all fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews is very clear about that. Galatians is very clear about that. There's just this one little piece where Christians are, are unsure, like, okay, this one rule, does it continue? Because it's not really pressed in the New Testament the same way the other rules are. Well, Hebrews 4 says, I think explains part of that. Part of it is because it is really fulfilled in us resting from our works. We, we don't work to save ourselves because Jesus has done the work for us. So there's this ultimate fulfillment of Sabbath rest that we look forward to of heaven. And we know a taste of that now of, oh, I, don't, I don't have to work to save myself. Jesus has saved me, right? So we have this like, Ah, rest, we can enjoy every moment now. So I think that's the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath. So if I could call you to anything, that's what I would call you to. Would you rest from your works in Jesus? That's the most important thing, right? Christians can disagree about all the other details. Make sure you don't miss that, the Hebrews 4 interpretation. We find ultimate rest in Jesus. Don't miss that. 
And I think we get other clues that it's really good for us to, to practice a day, right? To have a rhythm that we practice of resting, of kind of pulling out from your regular rhythm to rest, to nap, to not do your normal work, to not check your email, whatever that might be. Um, different seasons of our life, I know for myself and my wife, you know, when we've had these kind of strict rules of, you know what, I'm just not going to do email on that day, or I'm just not going to do homework on that day, or I'm just not going to, you know, focus on work on that day, it's really reviving. There's been a lot of scientific studies as well that it's just good for people, you know, to have a rhythm of rest. So I'd say there's a lot of reasons to practice a actual daily ritual or weekly ritual of taking a day to rest. I think that's a good idea. We also get another clue from Mark 2.27 where Jesus says the Sabbath is not made for man, excuse me, man is not made for the Sabbath, I almost said that backwards, but the Sabbath is made for man. Like God gave this to man as a gift. It's good for us. And so my, the thing I say the most is like, why would we fight over the one commandment that says, relax, right? Like, relax. So, so we don't want to take it and say, hey, let's fight about who's keeping it better than, you know, like don't compete with each other, just relax, rest, trust that God is working for you. And I think that's the really important call that we have here. Jesus is calling us to rest in him. And I think because we can rest in him, because we have confidence in him, that can translate then into actual habits that we build, you know, like, okay, I'm not going to do my homework this one day, or I'm not going to do this kind of work, or, and I think, again, it varies from person to person. We have great freedom to kind of create our rhythm for doing that. Um, Hebrews is also clear that we are to gather together as believers and not forsake the gathering, right? So there's all kinds of things we are commanded to do. Let's do those main things. Let's not fight about the little things. Let's enjoy that Jesus works for us. So here again, I think the big idea, Jesus says, the Father's always working and I'm always working. So you know what? We can rest and trust him because he's working on our behalf. Um, I think one of the things that's also interesting to think about, Chris brought this up. We were talking about the sermon, our, our worship Pastor, there's been a lot of sociologists that have been talking about how we live in a world that's taught us to believe that what we see is all there is. And we've been taught that from birth again and again and again. Some people call this the de-enchantment of the world. We, we've lost touch with the reality of this wondrous God who is haunting all of creation. And we start to think that what we do is all that matters and what we can build and achieve is all that matters because that's all there is. And just remember that that message, that gospel is being pushed at you all the time. And that's not in agreement with the gospel of the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus. Gospel of Jesus is yes, this world counts and there's more, right? It's both and. What you do matters because God is real and he loves you and he's working on your behalf. So don't miss that. Don't miss the mystery of God is real. And so you know what? We can do some weird countercultural things like taking a nap and thanking God for it, right? Like resting in him. And this will mark us as those who trust in the Jesus that does the Father's work. So this transitions us then to the next thing. Again, he says, and don't marvel at this, there are greater things, right? There's even more to come. And that's what's coming here in the next section. Jesus gives the Father's life. Um, all theologians would say part of what makes God God is he's self-existent, meaning he has life within himself. Uh, we are creatures. We're dependent on God, dependent on this creation that he's made us in, uh, but God is different. Um, so in verse 26, he says, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. 
So Jesus has life in himself, just like the Father has life in himself, and that's different than you and me. We're a different category of creature, of, of thing. So we're going to pick up in verse 21. Look at verse 21. He says in verse 20, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So see how he's linking these two things together. He's saying there is judgment that I and the Father have, and there's this life-giving power, life-giving ability that I and the Father have. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. It's here already. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So this is also important. He says, the hour is coming and is here, right? And so throughout the Gospel of John, the hour is coming, the time is coming, refers to the cross. That's coming, hasn't happened yet. But there's a reality within which Jesus is saying, but right now, just trusting me, you can have that life already, right? So there's this future we look forward to where everything's going to be finished. It's all going to be made right. There's going to be no more tear, no more pain, no more crying. Jesus is saying there's a sense in which we can enter into that now. Again, Hebrews 4, talking about Sabbath, says we enter into the rest, the life that Jesus offers us now by faith, by trusting in him that he's worked for us. Jesus says, I'm the life giver. I'm the judge, but I'm also the life giver. And there's a time in which you can now know this rising from the dead. It's spiritual life that we can now have in Christ. Look at verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So what does that mean? This title is interesting. It's the most common title that Jesus uses for himself in the New Testament when you look at all the gospels. There's a very kind of bottom basement understanding of the word. That's just what prophets are always called. Prophets are always called son of man, right? So at one level, it's this kind of like unoffensive term Jesus uses for himself. I'm just like all these other prophets, right? But then there's also this other little clue of something interesting in Daniel. There is a son of man in the book of Daniel in this vision who receives all dominion and all power throughout the world. That's an interesting clue as well to what Jesus means when he talks about being the son of man. So there's like a son of man. You know, every prophet is a son of man. And then there's the son of man in Daniel who receives all dominion, all judgment, all authority. He is the king of the universe. So most would say Jesus is connecting to that because he says the son of man. Not just a son of man, the son of man. And then there's also, when you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, what's the first promise of grace that is given to us? This promise that's made when Adam and Eve sin, they fall for the serpent's lies, God promises that there will someday be a son of Eve, a son of humanity, a son of man who will crush evil once and for all. So we have all, all of that packed in this title, right? So on the one hand, it's this super humble thing Jesus is saying, like, yeah, I'm just a dude, right? <laughs> On another level, he's like, no, I'm the dude, I am the one that we've all been waiting for. The Bible promises that someday a human is going to defeat evil. Jesus is saying he's that human. 
who is also, like the Daniel vision, the one who is also the judge and king of the entire universe. None of that makes sense except in Jesus, right? There are all these threads throughout the Old Testament that only come together in Jesus. And one of the threads here is Jesus joining together judgment and life-giving, right? How is God both just, he destroys us for our sin, and life-giving, he forgives us. How can both be true? The whole Old Testament is, is pointing to this and showing that somehow both of these things are real about God. God is a life giver. God is also a God of wrath and justice. And so we, we see these different sides of God. We're like, is it, is it this? Is he gracious? Is he life-giving? Or is he just? And he's going to wipe me out, and that's what I deserve. Which is it? The cross, where this book is heading, is what pulls those things together. So we're going to continue. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus before was like, yeah, don't marvel. There's more to marvel at. Here he says, and here's, here's some things to marvel at. The son has judgment. The son gives life. Just like the father, we're one. I've been given that from the father. And he's like, don't marvel, but, but listen to this. Really what he's saying is, okay, here's the real marvel. So don't marvel just that life is gonna happen and life will be dealt out, but people will rise from their graves. Like he's saying, it's gonna be crazy. He's underlining this death to life transformation that's gonna, that's gonna happen through him. And that he told, he told us about through Nicodemus, right? Through Nicodemus, he was connecting the dots back to the Old Testament where there are these prophecies that the dead would rise, that those who have completely dead bones would now walk around and breathe and have life. The Bible says, Romans 3.23, is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us deserve judgment. So the, the judgment of God is righteous and true. Jesus is a just judge. Most courthouses have some kind of symbol of justice, some kind of like goddess of justice or symbol of justice. Here's a real common one. You've got scales in one hand and a sword in the other. That's the symbol of justice throughout our culture. And then again, there's variations of this, but let's just focus on this one. Scales, the idea is that justice is looking at your life and weighing out what you've done. And what's the sword for? Well, if you're guilty, you're toast, right? You're dead. The Bible says, and Jesus reiterates this, being really religious is not enough to right the scales. It's not enough to like put you in the good side. If you've broken the law at any part at all, you're guilty of all of us. That's what James says in James 2.10. And so in God's economy, he's balancing our life in the scales and, and we deserve justice. But Jesus says, but I'm the life giver. I'm the life giver. And so we deserve this just death. We've inherited spiritual death, but by the gift of God, we get life, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So God can be both just and the justifier of the wicked, the justifier, the, the one who makes right sinners like you and me, and that's because of his grace. That's because on the cross, he took our sins upon himself. And by faith, if you say, I trust you, help me, give me life, he will give it to you. 
And so we're not real mechanical around here. We usually just lay it out there and, and tell you this is the truth. Do with it what you will. But, but I want to encourage you in this moment. You, you could pray to God right now, God, I recognize that I deserve your wrath. You could pray that right now. You could say, I understand that. I recognize that I've fallen short of your glory and I deserve death. But I'm, I'm begging you and asking you for forgiveness. Will you place my sins on the cross with Christ? Will you give me forgiveness and resurrection life? And you know what? He'll give it to you. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is say, please. The open hands of faith are, I trust in you and not in me. And Jesus is the life giver. Jesus is the one who gives life. Jesus is the one who calls those of us who are spiritual zombies, who are spiritually dead. He's the one who calls us up out of the grave. Have you, have you come to Jesus in that way yet? Have you ever had that kind of personal trust that you've placed in him? We often talk about repentance and faith, turning from our sin. I see now sin can't save me. And trust, trusting, faith in Jesus. I see now that Jesus can save me. Have you turned and trusted? Have you repented and put your faith in Jesus? That's an important first step for all of us to take. And I would say for those of you that did that 20 years ago, it's important to recognize that every day that you get up, you only have life because you're trusting in him. And so live every day by faith. Live every day trusting that Jesus is the life giver because we can all drift back to these old habits, right? Well, I know that when I die, I'm gonna go to heaven because Jesus forgave me. You know, we had, I prayed this prayer one time, I know that. But then we live our daily life not really trusting him, right? We kind of trust in the future. We, we trust in that moment of death that he'll save us, but day to day, we're really trusting in our job or in our relationships or in the way we can manipulate our circumstances. We have to call ourselves back every day to trust him as the true life giver, that even though we deserve judgment, he gives life. This last point, um, Jesus starts to show that really this is what the whole Old Testament is about. So, so if somehow you've missed that Sabbath rest is resting in God because he works for you, or if you've missed that the God of the Old Testament has always been a God of both justice and grace, and all you have to do is ask him for that grace, he'll give it to you. Jesus is saying, well, you've missed the Old Testament, right? Remember, while Jesus is speaking, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So every time the New Testament talks about the scriptures, almost every time, there's a couple of quotes where it is talking about other New Testament letters, but almost every time it says the word scripture, it's talking about the Old Testament. And so here we have the switch of Jesus is the final, of the Father's final word. Jesus is the word itself. He's what the word is about. He's what the word, uh, he embodies the message of the word. So, so pick up in verse 37. Verse 37 says this. The father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to them. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe me when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my writings? Again, Jesus is saying, Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Moses testified that God is just and he's gracious. And one who's coming who will make sense of all of this, right? Moses is one who penned the words in Genesis 3.15 about the coming son of man, son of Eve, that would save us all. Moses is the one that predicted this. Moses is the one at the end of his life that said, there's going to be a prophet that's going to come like me. He's going to speak the words of God. The Jews were looking forward to this day, yet when Jesus came, they rejected him. Jesus is using technical language. He uses language of testimony. Um, It's courtroom kind of language, right? He's saying, you didn't really trust me and my testimony, but my father's made testimony. Uh, Before this, I skipped over some verses in verses 30 through 36 where he talks about John the Baptist. He's like, well, John the Baptist made testimony. John the Baptist made courtroom testimony. He was giving evidence. He was a witness to me and who I am, but you didn't believe him, right? And there was a big following of people following John the Baptist. He's like, you liked John the Baptist for a while, but then when he started pointing people to me, you didn't, you didn't like him anymore. And so Jesus is weaving together this whole concept of being a witness, of giving testimony. How do we know what's true in this world? And Jesus is saying the Father has given testimony in his word. God wrote the Old Testament. He gave it to us. If you're not going to believe what God wrote through Moses, you're not going to believe me. And Jesus says, you think somehow you get your life from studying the book, but you're missing me, and I'm the point of the book. Look at this again in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you have, may have life. He talks later about part of the dynamic of why they refuse to come to Jesus is they've set up the system of competitive glory. He's like, you don't want the glory that comes from God. You want the glory that comes from man. And so with this framework of looking at the scriptures to find life by studying the Bible and then caring about the glory of man but not the glory of God, what we see is Jesus is is calling out their recipe of trying to save themselves through religion instead of by trusting in God's grace. And I don't know about you, but this, this hits hard to home, right? Like, I've, I've been a believer for about 27 years. It means I've been reading my Bible for about 27 years. I love the scriptures. I love to learn. But there's a real danger that we can slip into of thinking that God's impressed somehow with our learning. Or that somehow the more we read, the more God will bless us or be proud of us or reward us. Or somehow we'll have like a competitive glory where I can... I can measure myself up next to someone else who knows I know the Bible better than them. I, I know more facts. I know more truths. Or I'm obeying it better than them. This wanting of the glory of man instead of wanting the glory of God. Jesus is kind of bringing us back to the center and saying, no, it's about, it's about me. It's about me as the life giver. It's about coming to me and recognizing you can't do it on your own, right? Recognizing throughout all these Old Testament sacrificial systems, it keeps showing us again and again that we're sinful, And that God is not. And so we can't do anything about it, but God can. God can fix that problem. He can bridge that gap. And again, that's what Jesus is saying. He is the solution to. He is the one who makes sense of a God who is both just and also gracious. My challenge for us as we move forward is that we would read the scriptures, 
but we would read the scriptures desperate to know and love Jesus more. No matter what Bible reading plan you do, no matter what kind of Bible study you're in, it should all come back to, Jesus is so good to me. I love Jesus more. That's a test of a Bible study. If at the end of your Bible study, you're more impressed with Jesus and you love him more than when you started, that's a good Bible study. The measure shouldn't be the number of facts you've memorized or your skills. It's how much more do you love Jesus? That's the transformation we should be pursuing. Jesus is the Father's final word. It's made really clear in Hebrews Hebrews 1. It's like, God spoke to us in all these other ways. Now he speaks to us through his son. This is the testimony. This is the court witness that we have from God as Jesus himself. So if you come to him for life. Again, I think we struggle with this whole concept of the oneness of Jesus with his father because we live in a world of disunity, right? We all live there. Um, I have an awesome family, but you know what? We still, we still have disunity in our family. And I know enough of you to know you have disunity in your family. None of us really fully know that perfect love of father and son that Jesus has with his father that he prays that we will know by faith as we start walking with him. So I want to lay that out to you and say that's, that's something that we look forward to. As we come to Jesus in faith, we actually will begin to know a oneness with him that can start to bleed out and, and allow us to start to have a oneness with other people. This movie, Goodbye Christopher Robin, I said that the Winnie the Pooh stories were actually written out of this joy and fellowship of a father and a son, which is a really beautiful thing. And then this tragedy came where he started getting bullied because of it. And he began to hate the stories. He began to feel like those stories had been written at the cost of his own normalcy, right? There's this beautiful moment, though, in the movie towards the end where he goes off to war. He comes back to war, and he's sitting on a log, and he and his father are looking out over the 100-acre wood, and they're just enjoying the beauty together. And they begin to reconcile. And he tells his father, you know what? We are under heavy fire uh, he had just come back from World War II. We were in the desert under heavy fire. Some of the soldiers I was with began to hum the songs of Winnie the Pooh. They began to sing these songs, and he was like, my first thought was like, how in the world do they know these songs? And he was like, oh yeah, everybody in the world knows these songs now because of the publishing of the Winnie the Pooh stories. But then he was happy about it because he recognized and he told his father, I see that that joy that we had together gave joy to other people in these dark moments. It gave joy to them. And then his father apologized. He's like, I'm so, I'm so sorry that, that you had to pay for that. The first time I saw that movie, I'd, I just started to cry as best as I can. I'm not a good crier, but it, it touched me, right? Like I was like, wow, this is so beautiful. Like the, the, the son paid this heavy price that brought joy to everyone else. I was like, if that's not a, a Jesus parallel, I don't know what is. Here's the really sad thing. You know what? In real life, that, that part didn't happen. That was in the movie? I would guess because the director is a Christian. But in real life, Christopher Robin never reconciled with his dad. And that's where a lot of us are. But I think the director did something really beautiful by putting that in the movie. He gave us a vision of what is, what John has told us is in John chapter 1 this eternal oneness and happiness and fellowship and joy and love that the Father, Holy Spirit, and Son have together. And John is haunting us with that. 
the maker of this movie is haunting us with that saying, wouldn't it be amazing to be a part of that kind of fellowship? A father who is both just but also loves to give grace to the world. A son who so loves the father that he's like, yeah, let's do it together, you and me. Let's share this beauty that we have with the rest of the world. So that in the movie, part of the lines was, yeah, it cost me a lot, but you know what? We had this first, and so now he was happy to share that with the world. I think we can only be those kinds of people if we see it first in Jesus and his Father. We can only be those kind of people that have unity in our human relationships that, that find it a joy to pay the price to share the joy we have with others because we've seen it first in God the Father and God the Son. So I think that's the ultimate message here. Jesus is saying, yeah, I, I'm doing crazy things, but it, it flows out of the love I have for my people because of the love I have with my Father. And that's what he's inviting us into as well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you loved your son perfectly from eternity past. So that when you, Father, and you, Son, and you, Holy Spirit, devised a plan to save the world, you were all on the same page, and you've done it with joy. And so, God, it seems too good to be true, but we come in faith trusting that you love us not because of anything that we have done, but because of your grace, because of your mercy. You share the joy you have with us. You paid the price for our sins because you loved us first. We thank you. Help us to respond in faith to that. Help us to walk as those who share the joy we've been given supernaturally with others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Communion is